morning everyone with all the everybody in one service takes a little bit longer for the kids to get out there and the parents and um, everybody to greet each other so welcome this morning to restoration my name is John I'm one of the pastors here it's great to be with you all on this first Sunday after Easter we're now in the season in our church calendar uh, called Easter tide this is the season of about 50 days roughly where we go from the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated last Sunday uh, to Pentecost, which is when we celebrate in 50 days uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples after Jesus's ascension. And it's fitting that we would look forward to Jesus's ascension because that's where our new series begins. As Jenny Lynn said, we're beginning a series in the book of Acts. We did James. We paused for Holy Week, then we're picking up this new series in Acts. And you saw up on the screen that it's titled The Story of the Church. Now the reason for that is that Acts begins with the resurrection of Jesus. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. And the church begins. And so we ask the question as we study the book, how did that happen? How did the church go from this small group of disciples and followers of Jesus in Israel to the entire Roman Empire? How did the church that we see today, 2,000 years later, all over the world, come into existence? What did the disciples feel like their mission was? How did they accomplish it? How did the gospel spread? How, how did the, the church come into existence? What is the story of the church. That's what we're going to be looking at over these coming months. Now, one of the things that's important about that question is that it's not just the story of the church 2,000 years ago. It's our story today. We're a small localized expression of the universal church. We're a continuation of what happens in the book of Acts. So as we study the story of the church in Acts, we're going to be asking what that means for us. As we look at the way the church grew, the way the gospel went out into the world, the work that the disciples were doing, the power of the Holy Spirit working among them, we're going to ask what implications that has for us 2,000 years later. So I'm going to invite Liz Lee up to read our passage for us this morning. We're beginning in chapter 1 in the first 11 verses. You can find that on page 909 of your pew Bible if you want to turn there as Liz comes up to read for us. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went on, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Liz. So, I just mentioned some of the, the big picture things that we're going to be talking about over the few months in Acts. But we also want to ask about some context for the book itself. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? Well, the first few words give us a few clues, right? It begins, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So immediately we have a piece of the puzzle. This book isn't just an independent book. There's another book connected to it. So what we learn is that Acts is actually part two of a set of books. The first of those is the Gospel of Luke. The reason that we know that is that this man, Theophilus, is mentioned there also. Luke begins his Gospel by talking about Theophilus. Part one, the Gospel of Luke, was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And now part two picks up with Jesus' ascension. So Luke's the author. Theophilus is the primary audience, and we don't know much about Theophilus. There are some people that speculate it's not an actual person, but it's just a, a name that's representative of, of all Christians. I don't actually think that the evidence supports that. I really do think there was an actual person, Theophilus. Maybe he was a, a wealthy Christian or a wealthy uh, seeker of the faith who commissioned Luke to go and do this research. Because remember, Luke was not one of the original disciples or followers of Jesus. So he came into the faith after Jesus' resurrection. So he would have had to, to travel around to interview and research uh, to find out what happened with the story of Jesus. He does come into the book of Acts in person, and we'll see that as we study it. But Luke is the author, Theophilus is the audience, but it's clear also that Luke has a broader audience in mind. Luke has the future church in mind. We're going to see in the first 11 verses, Luke lays out some foundational components of the church, some foundational principles for the way that we're going to read about the church expanding in the book of Acts, because he wants the future church to be able to look back, to look at its history with confidence, and to move forward in faith. By looking back, by using Acts to look back at the way that God worked in history, to see how his faithfulness continued after the resurrection and through the establishment of the church, future Christians, future churches like ours, are going to be able to be confident that God's work continues today, that the story of the church is not just contained to Acts, but continues with us today until Jesus returns. So can we, we can be confident about that, and we're going to see that in these first 11 verses. How did the story begin? Jesus gives these final instructions before he ascends to heaven, instructions that are going to be foundational for the church then and today. 
So how did he begin his church? What were those foundations? That's our question this morning. And we're going to look at three ways that Jesus begins his church. Look back with me first at verses 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, if you know anything from the Gospels, the disciples, over and over and over again, questioned Jesus about his purposes and the goal of his mission. Even here, after the resurrection, the disciples still hold out hope that they're going to be able to see the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises happen in their lifetimes. Jesus is risen from the dead. And so their first question is, okay, now is it time? Is this it? Now, it's important to note what they want is a good thing, right? They want Jesus to restore the world to the way that it should be. It's taken them some time, but they finally grasped this idea that Jesus came to die and defeat sin and death. So they assume the next step must be the ultimate final completion of that restorative work. That's what's going to happen next, right? But Jesus says it's not as simple as that. Now, anytime I travel with my kids on a road trip, there's one question that's repeated more than any other. I already see some parents smiling in the room because everybody knows the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Children have no patience for the trip. They ask, are we there yet? A thousand times, sometimes within minutes of you telling them, no, we're still, you know, hours away. But as my kids have gotten a little bit older, they've started to ask that question a little bit less. As they've matured, as they've grown in experience, as they've gone on more trips, they realize that getting to the destination requires patience. There are roads to drive on. There are miles to travel. There's gas to get. You have to look at maps. You have to study the route. They know that it's not just as simple as getting somewhere. It's not just about the destination. Getting to the destination requires patience. And that's Jesus' answer to the disciples. Jesus begins his church with patience. He doesn't dismiss their desire as being wrong. Everyone wants to be there. Everyone wants to see the kingdom of God fully restored. But they have to be patient because there's work to be done. There's a journey that has to come before the destination. Because the one part of their statement that they did get wrong was the part about Israel. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom of God's never been just about Israel. God's promises were to begin in Israel, but they were to bless all the nations. And so Jesus knows that what's next is not the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. It's the restoration of the gospel going to all the nations from Israel. And that requires patience. Now, before we're too hard on the disciples, let's remember how easy it is for us to do the same thing. We all long for the restoration of God's kingdom in this world. 
It's easy for us to get frustrated when we see things inside or outside of the walls of the church that aren't the way they should be. When we see the church not behaving the way that it should or having the impact in our world that we think it should. We've seen countless people walk away from our faith because the church just doesn't seem to be acting the way it should. I don't want to dismiss any of those. Those are legitimate critiques. The church should be constantly reforming in ways that are faithful to the Bible, but that are also contextualized to the society that it's in. There are a lot of legitimate critiques to make against the church. But this passage reminds us that we ought to be patient with the work of the church. Because over and over again, Jesus said in his time on earth that God's kingdom was going to be slow. It was going to be in small places. It wasn't going to be big and fast and flashy. We ought to recognize that patience also requires us to look beyond just our immediate surroundings. The kingdom promises to the church, the way the church ought to work in the world, those promises are for the universal church that exists throughout all time, not just the church in St. Louis or America, or the 21st century. So sometimes when others or we ourselves have run out of patience with Christianity or the church, we ought to ask ourselves, is it really Christianity and the church that I've run out of patience with, or is it just the 21st century American evangelical version of that that I see in this one moment? That's what I've lost patience with. Because what's true is that God has been and will be at work all around the world in small, quiet, incredible ways that you and I will never see and never hear about and never experience. So Jesus encourages the church, have patience. The Father's the only one who sees all of that work happening. And so he's the only one that has the authority over when that work's going to be finished. So Jesus asks us to be patient. Is that it? Our job now is just to, to gather together, to worship, and to wait. To wait for him to bring about the restoration of the kingdom. Well, the answer to that is in the next verse. Look back with me at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus reminds the disciples here that patience is not the same as inactivity. John Calvin said about this passage, Surely the apostles have taught us by their example that we must rest and work at the Lord's pleasure alone. God's kingdom has always held the tension between rest and work. Sometimes you hear us call that the now, but the not yet. The idea that God's work is complete. We can be patient and we can wait for Jesus's return because that's secure, but it's also not complete. We're invited to engage in the growth and the expansion of God's kingdom. We're invited to be part of this journey, this, this journey towards this destination of Jesus' return. We see that in verse 8. 
Jesus begins the church with patience, but he also begins it with a pattern, a pattern for our work. The work of the kingdom begins in Jerusalem, where Jesus died. Then it goes out in these concentric circles, right? It goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, each of these locations are real physical locations that Jesus is talking about. They're real actual things and implications for the disciples, but they're also figurative and have application for us today. Now, for the disciples, Jerusalem, that was their home. That was the center of their faith. In some ways, it was the most comfortable place for them to talk about and live out their faith. But at the same time, because of that familiarity and because of their newfound faith in Christ, it had also become a really difficult place for them to talk about and live out their faith. It was the place where people knew them. It was the place where they were known by others, but also publicly rejected and persecuted for their faith. We're going to see that in the first seven chapters of Acts. We're going to see Jerusalem as the place where their faith goes out, but it goes out in difficult ways. Where's that place for you? A place that's comfortable because it feels like home to you and it's familiar. Your neighborhood, your school, maybe with certain family members, your workplace. What's the place that's comfortable for you to be yourself and to live out your faith, but at the same time, because it's familiar and because your faith challenges you in radical ways, it actually can maybe be a little bit difficult to be bold with your faith in that place. Where is that for you? The next part of the pattern is Judea and Samaria. For the disciples, this was the broader region in which they lived. Judea was very comfortable for them, but Samaria wasn't. Maybe some of you remember from John chapter 4 when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman that they have a conversation about how the Jews have rejected the Samaritans. This area of Samaria was viewed as unclean and, and separate. Jews rejected the Samaritans for their religious syncretism, for their mixed racial heritage. One commentator said that for the disciples, Samaria was close in location, but it was distant in mind and heart. Jesus' pattern of going to Judea and Samaria pressed against the disciples' sinful way that they would have discriminated against Samaria. And so it's going to do the same thing for us. Ephesians 2 says that through Jesus, God has broken down the dividing wall of differences between people. All people are welcome into the kingdom of God through Jesus. But they can only do that, Romans 10 tells us, if someone goes to them as a messenger. And so Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to be messengers to the places where you previously would have discriminated against. That's what my gospel does. And so where's that for you? Where are the places that it's difficult to you for you to go to? The places where it would be hard for you to think about taking the gospel to? Maybe it's racial differences, ethnic differences. Maybe it's socioeconomic differences. Maybe it's political affiliation differences. Who are the people 
that it's hard for you to think about the gospel going to? What would it look like to actually step out in faith and trust God to open doors for you to go to those places? Or to change your heart toward those people? That's the pattern that Jesus invites his church into. And then it's a pattern that continues to the ends of the earth. The mission of the church has always and will always be to take the gospel to the farthest places away from you. At Restoration, we have the privilege of being close to Covenant Seminary. We've talked about it a lot. We see a lot of Covenant Seminary students come to our church, and many of them that have left and gone all over the world. You can go out here as you leave church and see a display there with cards from people that we've sent and seen go all over the world with the gospel. So as a church, we should pray for them, check in on them, support them, help the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And then remember, that's not just a call for seminary students. Might you be called to go to the ends of the earth? Regardless of the specifics of each individual person in here's calling, the fact is that each of us has this pattern imprinted on us by these verses. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, then you are called to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's not optional for us as Christians. That's the pattern of Jesus for his church. So are you praying and growing and keeping your eyes open for where God might open those doors for you. Now, I admit, that's a daunting task. It's scary to think about God calling us into this kind of pattern to be a, a public witness for him. Whether that's the difficulty of going somewhere else in the world, or even just the difficulty we talked about of, of witnessing in your own personal Jerusalem. But it's not the first time that we've seen commands in the Bible that appear difficult or even feel impossible. And if you remember, if you listen well each week, you hear us coming back to the same answer to that difficulty each week. God's calling always comes with God's equipping. We see that in verses 5 and 8. Jesus promises not to leave the disciples unequipped not to leave them alone. He says you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be the power for your calling as witnesses. God always equips the called. We need to hear that. I can't tell you the times that I spent sitting with college students, sitting with now church members, sitting with seminary students, sitting with my friends at seminary, thinking about my own heart where I questioned, can I do this? Where friends said, I just don't know if I have the gifts or the abilities to do this. I feel called, but am I capable? God equips the called. God gives the Holy Spirit. And so if each of us are called into this missional pattern that we talked about, then each of us is equipped by God for that task. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus begins his church with patience. He begins it with a pattern. And here we see he begins it with the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Now, the idea of accomplishing a task with power isn't new to us, right? Whether it's political power or financial power, power of reputation, power of influence, we understand that we can use power to accomplish things. But in this case, this is a different kind of power. This is the kind of power that comes through death and is a witness to death. But it's also the kind of power that comes through resurrection and is witness to resurrection. That's the hope behind Holy Spirit power. We're called to be patient witnesses. We're called to go to difficult places and do difficult things. But we have the Holy Spirit that Romans 6 says is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what lives inside of each of us this morning. So how scary can the task be? It can't be scarier than death. How hard can the task be? It can't be harder than resurrection. And so if the Holy Spirit that witnesses to death and witnesses to the resurrection, if that's the power that's in you, then there can't be a calling and task that's too scary or too hard. Jesus begins the church with patience, with a pattern, and with power. And we're part of that story. The Holy Spirit lives in you and lives in his church then there's no calling that we should be fearful of. There's no calling we can't accomplish because God's with us. So join with us over these next few months as we look at the book of Acts. The book is titled The Acts of the Apostles, but many people have said it could have easily been called The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit in action in the story of the church, and we're going to be encouraged how he's still at work in our church today. Let's pray. Fathers, we begin this new series as we look at the work through history that your Holy Spirit has done through your faithful followers. We pray that we would be faithful as well, that we would continue in the line of trust and faithfulness, to continue in the line of people who are patient with your work, but we're faithful to enact the pattern that you've given us, and that we do all that with the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask your Holy Spirit to be inside of us and to equip us for that work. In your name we pray. Amen.